Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 235 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris. She is the Alice Gabriel Twight Professor in the Roxlin and Richard Pepper Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders, Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs in the School of Communication, and Director of the Swallowing Cross Systems Collaborative at Northwestern University. Her research interests include swallowing impairment and respiratory swallowing interactions, assessment and treatment approaches for patients with head and neck cancer, neurologic and pulmonary diseases. Dr. Martin Harris's research is funded by the NIH, VA, Bracco Diagnostics, and Mark and Evelyn Trammell Foundation. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Bonnie. Hi, how are you, Teresa? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm so excited to have this conversation today. I'm so glad we finally are able to sit down and do it. So you want to tell the people a little bit about who you are if they they don't know who you are? Okay, sure. Well, my name is... Bonnie Martin-Harris. I am a professor in communication sciences and disorders at Northwestern University, and I uh, direct our lab, the Cross Systems uh, Swallowing Laboratory here at Northwestern. I guess for the the audience out there, you know, I, I like people to understand that I'm a clinician first and a researcher second. All of my research, it's probably pretty obvious, has been derived from clinic. So I worked as a clinician before pursuing my PhD um, and solidified the areas that I wanted to really address 
uh, with a research degree. Um, so I'm a clinical researcher, and that's how I approach uh, most of the questions that we address. Thanks, Bonnie. Yeah, so what, what do you want to dive into today? What do we want to talk about? Oh, well, we can talk about um, standardization of swallowing assessment, if you like. We can talk about... Sure. Um, yeah, so uh, I spent... You know, I have several lines of research, clinical research, and this is one part of my program of research that truly grew out of a clinical situation, uh, a clinical conundrum that uh, I, I was going through and that the people that worked with me in my community were going through. And so that's where the whole standardization of video fluoroscopic swallowing assessment even started from. So we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit about sort of the history of MBSIMP. I think, you know, those of us that have been clinicians for a little extended period of time, I've been a clinician for 15 years now, which still doesn't seem like too long. But I think, you know, right when I just got out of grad school, MBSIMP was becoming a concept and was, you know, gaining speed. And I think some of the, the younger clinicians now are like, oh, it's this new procedure. It's like, no, yeah. it's been around people. So <laughs> yeah, I'd love if you could sort of just give us, a, take us back in time to sort of where it came from and, and the history and where we are today. Thanks, Teresa. I really do like to talk about it because I think sometimes people think it was this thing that I developed with this that was very intentional. We called it what we did. And the truth of the matter is it started really with a patient um, that, that kind of the, the light bulb went off. When I was at the Medical University of South Carolina, my appointment there, um, I had had my PhD, but my appointment was very clinically oriented. So I'm in the clinic and patients used to come there from all over to get second opinions. And, and this particular patient had head and neck cancer. And the reason they would come there because the surgeons who were there, and I guess maybe I had something to do with it because I had some reputation in swallowing. So I had a woman come and her name was Ruth and I've ne I'll never forget her. And you know, at that time, this was in the nineties, we didn't have, actually I started there in 2000. So I probably saw her in the early 2000s, maybe 2002. And she brought a big, thick chart with her, with all of her reports. Um, we didn't have Epic back then or another kind of digital system. So I started leafing through trying to figure out, you know, okay, I have a patient coming. What am I going to do? I have 10 minutes to look through this chart, right, in clinic. And I counted 11 reports from swallow studies that Ruth had had. And of course, these were at different stages during her cancer story. She had had multiple recurrences, a young, vibrant, healthy 30-some-year-old woman who um, started off with a, a mass in her mandible. And she had multiple recurrences, multiple radiation uh, uh, stints, and then chemo radiation uh, as well, and then surgery. So long story, she had all of these um, procedures done and 11 different swallow studies. So I started looking through them. Every single one was different. Um, the majority of them were like a checklist sort of thing. Yes, no. And I just remember feeling really sad that I was going to have to put this woman through another swallow study after everything she'd been through. 
but I didn't really feel like I had a choice because I, I didn't know what was wrong with her. I mean, I could gain a clinical impression, right? But she came to us because she wanted to eat with her kids and she had a peg tube. And so I needed to know what was really wrong. I needed to understand her swallow mechanism and, you know, not just plus minus aspiration, because that's what a lot of the, uh, them said, you know, the report said. So that, that was one story. And then even prior to that, when I was at St. Joseph's Hospital in Atlanta, um, I worked on a paper with Jerry Logeman, who was my mentor when I was doing my PhD. And we looked at 600 swallow studies uh, retrospectively. So, you know, now knowing what I know about research, that's not, that's the, not the best design um, to draw conclusions. But nonetheless, in that study, we started to talk about components of swallowing, you know, which ones mattered. And so that was really, so I was trying to put these two things together. People didn't generally describe components. They talked about oral phase, pharyngeal phase. They talked about timing to some degree, but nobody really looked at the mechanism. So I thought after I saw Ruth that day, I'm going to see if I can write a grant. And in this grant, if we can try and develop some agreed upon components, I don't know, I call them components, parts <laughs> of swallowing physiology that could be assessed and could be obsessed with um, objectivity as much as possible, reliability, and that we could compare between clinicians and that we could describe to another clinician so that they wouldn't have to repeat something that we've already done. So we set out to do that. And I wrote a grant the first time I didn't get it, um, which is the case with many grants. And I was fortunate I got it the second time. And it was actually, um, it, this was actually a training grant. So the, the research was part of the grant, but the other was training. And the training for me as a PhD was a new area and it was biostatistics. So I wanted to learn about tool design and that sort of thing. So that's how this all came about. Had no clue if it would amount to anything. I thought it might be something we could use in my clinic. And at the time, we were also collaborating with St. Joseph's Hospital of Atlanta, which is community-based hospital. I was at a university medical center. So we thought, well, let's see if we can get two sites, you know, to represent, which represents speech pathologists, community-based academic medicine, and see if we can do this together. So the very first thing I did was I searched the literature and you know, in 2000, looking back at the literature, I what I was looking at, we didn't even call them systematic reviews then, but what we did, what I did was try and determine based on evidence, which components of the swallowing mechanism matter in terms of functionality of a patient, what really matters. And so I did this literature review I work with a statistician and we came up with these things. Um, I still don't think we call them components, um, items. And there were 12 of them. I, uh, we expanded to 17. There were 17. There's 17 now. There were actually 17 then. Um, I thought I'd get rid of a lot of them, but there were 17. And what I did was did something called consensus validation. And what you do with consensus validation is you bring the experts in who know the area. And so I, I contacted experts who were speech pathologists, 
otolaryngologists, radiologists, rehabilitation specialists, gastroenterologists, pulmonologists. I don't know if I'm missing anybody. But I, these people were people that, you know, names you would recognize. And I contacted them as an early investigator. And I said, would you participate in this um, consensus validation? We're going to use a scientific approach called the Delphi method. And they said, yes. And then my uh, postdoc at the time, Marty Brodsky, who is now all grown up and um, an associate professor at, at Hopkins, said to me, I'll never forget the day he came in my office and he said, Bonnie, we're going to have a conference. And I said, Marty, what do you mean we're going to have a conference? And he said, well, we have all these people coming to Charleston. We should have a conference. We have to pay them for their time. We need money. I said, okay, well, we'll have a conference. So lo and behold, that was the first Charleston Swallowing Conference. And we were at the beach in a tent. I do remember that. And it was quite fun. But the day before the conference, these amazing people got in a room with me for eight hours. And the biostatistician who was content neutral facilitated the meeting. And as she, um, what we did was we said to the group, okay, here's the first component we propose to study. It's not that we said, let's go do this. We said, this is what we propose. And then we, I presented the evidence as to why this particular thing was important to swallowing. And then they had a discussion and then they voted by ballot whether or not we should put it on this tool to test based on the evidence. And we went through this for all 17 of these things. They tweaked some. Um, and Delphi, uh, the way we did it is if there was one dissenting vote, we had to go back and talk about it again. And if we couldn't all agree, then we threw it out. We'd have to throw out the component. We didn't end up throwing any out. In fact, we added some that day, which I really didn't want. You know, my goal was data reduction. Let's get this down to seven things, right? At the end of the day, not only did we have 17 things, but I also had worked on my homework well before and came up with a scoring schema to, to attempt to quantify, visually quantify these movements um, with a, as an unambiguous score, as unambiguous as possible. So we presented the scale. We talked about it a lot. We tweaked it. The, we tweaked the adjectives. We tweaked the adverbs that were most visual. And we went through that. And if you look at early versions of the scale, non-published versions, you'll see that it was a perfect scale that every single component had the same amount of items. It was well-balanced. Statisticians love that. So then this, the next step, we had our wonderful meeting um, the next three days, and then I went back to work. And what we did was we attempted to train speech pathologists to score these visual observations. So we had to go into years of swallow studies and come up with examples of what these things look like. So what would a score of one look like? What would a two? What would a three? We did all that. And then we attempted to train these two sets of clinicians, one at Medical University, one at St. Joseph's in Atlanta. And there were some there were some components that we just couldn't ever get reliability on. And so that's how you reduce a scale. So you can have a perfect scale, you can measure anything, but if you can't be reliable, then it's meaningless. So we had to reduce the scale. And so certain items now, when you look at it, you might have a choice of three 
other items might have a choice of four um, or even five. And that's because we can be reliable with those variants of impairment. So that's how we established initial reliability. Then once we did all that, then we started collecting data on 300 people that were referred patients, referred for swallow studies. They were all dysphagic, meaning they had at least a symptom of dysphagia, a complaint. They were referred for a swallow study. We didn't do anything different with those patients during the study. All we did that was different was standardize the protocol. So the protocol always brings up lots of questions. So where did this protocol come from? The protocol was derived, again, based on the evidence that showed the swallow physiology changes with various viscosity and volume. I mean, we've known that. This is my work. This is way before me. So that's where it originally evolved. And we used the Verabar standardized, commercially prepared uh, consistencies because they had just come out because Jerry Logeman and Joanne Robbins had just finished that big clinical trial, Protocol 201, and they were available. And so we used them in the grant, which was perfect timing because this allowed us then to know that the patients we were testing at medical university, patients we were testing at St. Joseph's, were getting the same protocol, same consistencies, reproducible and transparent. We knew what one another were doing. We did that. We did that until we got to 300 people. And when I, if when I saw a patient or the, I didn't do them, I, the clinician saw the patient, they'd go through the protocol. But if a patient couldn't go any further because of safety issues, right, you're not going to force somebody to go all the way through. We had it built into the scoring, a stopping rule. And so you would just score the highest on the components you couldn't test from then on. So that's kind of how we dealt with that. Um, in the beginning, because we didn't really know how this was all going to work out, we, we waited, we tried to wait to the end to do compensatory strategies. We don't do that anymore. We do them as you need them. Uh, they're not included in the score. You can score them, but they're not included in the total score. So anyway, that's how the study transpired. We, we did that. We analyzed the data. At the end of the day, I had no idea how this was going to come out. And lo and behold, all of the, we did something called factor analysis, which looks at the construct validity of the tool. And then we, we compared the, the construct validity to clinical validity, et cetera. And all those 17 things stayed in the equation. And I just, which, what that really means is that because they were based on evidence, they stayed in the equation. And the evidence um, was, was strong in that, I thought certain things would fall out. Bronwyn Jones is a radiologist. She's retired now. It's to how long this has been going on since inception. She really wanted us to put epiglottic inversion on the tool. I didn't want to put it on the tool because I learned that the only way the epiglottis inverts is if the hyoid moves up and forward, you know, that there's traction on the um, epiglottic body of the epiglottis but she wanted it in there. So we put it in there and everybody agreed. And lo and behold, because of that, there are times, I've learned so much about swallow physiology since doing this. There are times where you will get full inversion of the epiglottis with absolutely no hyoid movement. And we've learned that it's because 
you know, you can entrain over contract the muscles of the pharynx and the base of tongue, and they can both contribute. So we've learned so much. Then um, once we did all this and I knew I also had to train other people to do it, or what good is this? All this were federal dollars, you know, in the beginning to, to try and test this out. I can't just do this in my lab. And that's what happens a lot of times. People do something, they test it, they use it in their lab, and it never gets to clinicians who really need it. So I had in my head in the very beginning, how would we train people to do this? I tested it out on the clinicians in our group, but then I knew it had to be bigger than that. So could we do this like on the internet? Could we do it via web? So we just did it ourselves. We weren't working with company or anything. We just tried to figure out how we would do this. We had all the examples together. And then we did find this company who was really digital. They're called digital advertising, dynamic advertising of all people. But they did these kinds of web-based teaching platforms. And the funny thing about them is I said, you know, once I explained the concept, I asked them, do you think you could develop an animation of this normal swallow? Now, keep in mind, these were not Tim's high definition video fluoroscopic studies. These, we thought they were great, right? But they were, um, they were converted because it wasn't the DICOM format that we have now. They were converted, but we thought they were great. And they said, oh, sure, no problem. I said, how long would that take to do it? And they said, oh, probably take us 90 days. And 90 days went. And what we did was we were back and forth on the phone with them saying, no, this isn't right. This isn't right. It was Marty. It was me. And it was John Sanditch, who's another clinician who worked with us. And it was just the three of us giving them insight. At the end of all of this, those animators, at, they were data-driven animations using our swallow studies. They knew swallowing better than probably most speech pathologists. Yeah. It, in fact, it was them that then we went on and animated every component, but it was them that saw things we didn't like pharyngeal stripping wave. I never really looked at pharyngeal stripping wave, not that much, you know, to me, based on Fred McConnell's early work, it just sort of stripped the bolus tail, not a big pressure generator, whatever. And when they would draw the animation and show it to us, you could see this big exaggerated pharyngeal stripping wave compensating for a tongue base that doesn't retract. So it just blows my mind how all the rules I thought existed, there was an exception to everyone. So that. Teresa is yes. the story of how that all came about. So and that is that is so fascinating, and of yeah. course, field testing since then. But yeah, that's where so fascinating. Started. What what were you researching, or what were you studying at the time when you decided to go down this avenue? Was it along these same lines, or was it totally no. different? <laughs> it was totally different. Thank you, because I had I had a small grant, like through luck. And maybe a little prayer I got um, as I was just starting leaving St. Joseph's and coming to MUSC, and I'm very interested in respiratory swallow coordination. That was my whole PhD topic, and no one was doing anything with our very few people were looking at breathing and swallowing, and that too because I, when I was at the VA for seven years before my PhD, we'd see these patients with COPD. And I could never figure out why they should have a swallowing problem. They didn't have a stroke, whatever. 
And so that got my interest there, Teresa. So my other program of research is really respiratory swallow coordination, how that impacts swallowing, the swallowing mechanism, impairment, and now rehabilitation methods that we're also doing. So yeah, I just kind of fell on this. It was this kind of like a need, and then it's thrown into this thing that I would have never even um, imagined. Now we're 40 countries, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's amazing. Great. Yeah. Was there anybody sort of along the way that thought it was silly or foolish or not necessary? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's one of those things, right? And and I was probably one of them. As, as a speech pathologist, there's an art to our science and you get very comfortable with your own way of doing things. And because swallowing, it's so young. I mean, it started in the 70s with Jerry and others, Mike Grower, you know, but they were all kind of working at the same time. But it was so young and we just learned from workshops. So, I mean, we, we learned we'd go to a workshop and then we kind of like do our own thing. I can remember at the, I can't believe it now. I would have patients bring in paper bags with things that they wanted to swallow during the swallow. So like peanut butter sandwiches and all this craziness. So, so people get very comfortable in the way they do things. And then there is this resistance to change. Um, So I'd say that's probably the biggest thing. And, and once I hope people understand the purpose of trying to standardize this primarily from a patient perspective, but also the clinician to clinician perspective. Yeah. Um, then, then I think people, most people get it. So, but yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd love to dive into some of this nitty gritty now. I th- and I think this is sort of a good segue. Something that I would hear constantly is so many SLPs say, well, the MBSIMP just takes up too much time. We can't do it in our hospital or our radiologists would never do that many trials or something like that. And so I just always thought that was so funny. It's like, no, this is the whole point that you people are missing. So yeah, I would love to hear your response to that one, Bonnie. That's a great question. And I was worried about it too. Yeah. In the beginning, I'm, I'm telling you, I mean, these are thinking I'm a clinician, right? So in the beginning, I was worried that maybe it would extend the time of the exam. And of course, I was worried about radiation. We know so little then. And the the bottom line is by using this standardized protocol, these 12 swallows, including compensation, you, you reduce the actual time of the exam and especially the fluoro time. So efficiency is improved mostly because, well, also because we're using standardized, we don't have to sit there and mix everything. Things are standardized and, and stable. And then um, we can, I had a clinician, young clinician say to me, I think the reason that I, I'm confident and I'm quicker is because I know what I'm looking for. And so once they were trained in the approach, they felt very efficient at doing the MBS IMP protocol or the approach. So it really, really reduces time and, and radiation exposure. And there, there are at least five or six studies more really that show evidence that that's the case. And I, and by the way, Teresa, I have some references for anybody who's listening, if they'd like to see um, if it would help them. Yeah. Yeah. With these. Yeah. We can stick those in the show notes. That would be great. Okay. Yeah. Did I answer your question? Yeah. 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 And and that leads me to the next one. So talk about where did the 12 trials come from? Why do we have to do these 12 trials? Why should we do these 12 trials? Right. You know, that was the thing. And again, same thing. I was kind of thinking maybe we'd get it down to four, 
But what happened is we, we, again, based on evidence, we selected the tasks that were varied in bolus consistency and method of swallowing. So, you know, spoon, uh, cup, and I kept it very basic. I didn't want to use all kinds of crazy things where you'd have to measure with a syringe and all this stuff. And so we used just the normal utensils that people use every day. And what we have found and repeatedly find is that each task on the MBS IMP has sufficiently high probability to capture the most significant impairment or severe impairment on the swallow study. So if we reduce, clinicians can do whatever they want to do. I mean, this is not like, you know, this is the other thing. It doesn't mean, you know, this is like, oh, we wear armor. And if you score MBSI, you have to do it this way. It is true that whenever you disrupt the protocol, you, you can impact the validity of the outcome. I mean, that's why you standardize things. But it's not like there's a police behind you that says nothing around. I don't mean any anything about police, but I'm just saying we, you know, it is up to the clinician who's doing the exam. But the bottom, so there is some flexibility that you have. But but because we continue to find if you skip around and you say, okay, they did fine with thin, I'm not going to do honey and I'm not going to do whatever thin honey and I'm not going to do pudding, then, then you're missing information because we find variability in the mechanism on those tasks, sometimes the most severe impairment. So we don't have scientific justification to eliminate any of them at this time. And that's based on 50,000 swallow studies. Maybe that'll change one day, but not yet. Yeah, yeah. And what do you say to to using the non-standardized consistencies? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, that's all we used to have, right? So we did the best we could. I would say to you that it's it's (laughs) life-changing, game-changing to have these. And and again, I'm not a salesperson by any chance. I'm a clinician. And in full disclosure, I have received an educational grant in the past from Brocco, but um, as many of us have. But the point here is that if what you need to do as a clinician is advocate for your patient and advocate for safety and the outcome of the exam, if you are mixing and matching and, and then you have a choice where barium is a uh, Verabar is available and you're still doing that, there are infection control issues. There are aspiration issues because if you're mixing things like applesauce, applesauce in the lung is worse than inert barium in the lung. So, you you know, this is a a safe, transparent and predictable way to do this exam. And it's going to be the same between clinicians. So I am one who says I don't mix consistencies. I know people think, well, you have to give mixed consistency or you're missing the boat. Listen, the purpose of the the modified barium swallow study is to capture, identify physiologic impairment, right? Using the simulated set of consistencies that kind of match what we eat and drink. You will never match everything on a tray. And if you're so insecure because you don't understand how swallow works, you'll feel like you have to give everything. But if I give a patient thin liquid and bolus control, tongue control bolus hold is a score of three. 
and initiation of pharyngeal swallow is a score of two or three. That patient is going to have trouble with mixed consistencies. I don't have to give them chicken soup or during the study to know that. Yeah. I I love that. I, you know, in my experience doing modified barium solid studies is very small. I did take the MBS IMP, but I only worked in just a small community hospital doing them. Most of my experiences with doing fees. And I think that's something that's really prevalent that they say a lot in fees is, you know, try the mixed consistencies or try, try a cheeseburger if that's what they want to have in the sniff. And part of me thinks, you know, oh, from a quality of life, you know, standpoint, oh, sure, that would be great to see. But then on the scientific standardized standpoint, it's like, well, what is this even showing us? Right. Well, and the other thing is a speech pathologist, whenever possible, doesn't just stop after the 10 minutes in fluoroscopy. You go to the bedside and you confirm your recommendation. You know, we're not perfect. You'll never be, no matter what measurement you're using, Patients are variable human beings and performance will vary. So you get the you get this 10-minute window to identify the nature and degree of severity, how they how they adapt to various, you know, quick compensations. Um, and but then you go to the bedside and you confirm their performance or, or you talk to the referring clinician, whatever, on the phone. But you don't ever just end there uh, with any tool, fees or floral. And I do fees too. That's the other thing, you know, people put you in camps, right? Right, right, right. right. You only do this, you know? My whole dissertation was endoscopy. So you use the tool that's appropriate for the question you need to answer. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you for clarifying that. Sure, of course. All right. Yeah. So how, so we talked a little bit about, you know, that MBS IMP does not take tons and tons and tons of time, but how, how can we seamlessly integrate it into our clinical practice? I really appreciate the question. Well, first of all, you know, if if you only do one swallow study a week, it's going to take you longer because you're not doing them every day. But the more you do, and if you're trained and you're practicing and you calibrate a, a between one another, then you're going to get quicker and quicker. So for me, if I'm looking at a swallow study, there's there's a bit of an art to it when I'm looking at overall impairments. So what what we do clinically is we look at the most severe score um, for each component. We don't score every all 12 swallows for that'd be like 77 or 72 score. That would take you an hour. No one, no one has time to do that. We do that in the lab for research purposes because we have very specific questions, but we find that capturing overall impairment, typically it takes about 10 to 20 minutes max. The patients that are the most difficult are subtle patients, quite frankly. If you're very severe, extreme scores are easier. But if you're somewhere in the middle, they take a little bit longer to make your your judgment. But I'd say it should take about 10 to 20 minutes. And in fact, we've been working uh, over the past couple of years with TIMS, and we now have the MBS IMP tool, if you will, drop down menu right in the workflow. So it's on their new version. Awesome. And what, what was really important to us is we do have a disclaimer. Again, we don't put anybody in jail if they don't follow the rules, but just based on our code of ethics, we said, I am an MBS IMP. I've been trained on how to do this so that I can ensure validity and reliability. I can put in my scores. I can push 
a button that takes it, all the de-identified data to the MDS IMP data registry. Um, and then it will generate an express report for you there that you can cut and paste. So we're trying to integrate it into workflow. Awesome. Um, yeah, and it, it's really, we're excited. It's been working really well. The PAS is also on there um, because we use penetration aspiration um, scale with um, with the MBS IMP. Yeah. Yeah, and I, there are other tools on there too. I think FOIS is on there. Digest is on there. So it's just to include some of these things in workflow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Do you guys do anything with that de-identified data? Does that give you any more tips as to, you know, where to go further with research or yeah. Thank you for the question because most people don't even realize that this is a whole big piece. So when, again, this started off as a grant and my, the goal of the grant was not only to see if I could standardize a tool that was valid and reliable and linked to some clinical action, but also something that could be read, analyzed in that, in a big data set that would inform us about how swallowing works going forward. So right now, Teresa, we have, um, last time I looked, 62,000 de-identified swallow studies in the database. And these are, these are clinicians in the field who do their swallow studies and they're just input, inputting their scores. We recently had a paper published um, in Journal of Speech-Language Hearing Research, Alex Klein, my amazing PhD student, almost finished. He re-examined the construct validity and the internal consistency of the MBS IMP based, I think, on 53,000 swallow studies. And the tool was, had even better results than it did when we, it was based on 300. Awesome. So that, and I don't even get involved. I mean, I just give them data and then they analyze it. So that made us really cool. happy. Yeah. And like I said, we've learned a lot about how swallowing works by looking at, um, at this big data set. That's cool. I think it's sort of like the whole full circle of pra- you know, clinical practice influencing research, but then research influencing clinical practice. And yeah, it's beautiful. And every clinician who pushes that button is engaging in clinical research. And so the clinicians always ask me, how can I get involved? You're getting involved. Push the button. Yeah. Push the button <laughs> for sure. And then the other thing I should tell you that we're doing right now is we have a project. We'll see how it goes. And it's a machine vision project where we're working with a team of engineers and we are training uh, attempting to train with pretty good results so far, a computer um, using various algorithms, trying to get the algorithm right um, to score some of the components of the MBS IMP. Amazing. You know, my, my big idea is that this also be in workflow. It could score for you and then you can override it yeah. because it'll never be perfect. It's yeah. we're year two of that. So that we're really excited about that. How cool. How cool. Actually, just the interview I just did before you was with an SLP that works at Google doing machine learning oh, stuff. Nice. Yeah. See, yeah I, mean, so. I mean, it definitely, there's a lot going on with machine yeah. learning, right? I don't, oh, cool. it, the engineers like to tell me, they call it computer assisted um, because they, they want to make sure that they don't ever give the impression that it, you know, substitutes for the clinician. It will, will never do that. But yeah. yeah. Well, never say never, but I don't think so. We always have to 
uh, override with our clinical observations. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. This is so exciting, Bonnie. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, let's, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about MBSI and P and IDSI and sort of how they're complementary but separate at the same time. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. So IDSI is also, as, as, as you know, a standardization initiative and um, standardizing the consistencies on our, that we recommend for our patients at mealtime, et cetera. Um, and it's a, it's a great thing, you know, so, so that's that, but it's, but so people ask me things like, are you going to give itsy levels something during the swallow study? Or are you going to change MBSIM protocol based on itsy? And, and my answer to that is no, because that's not the purpose of the modified barium swallow study. And in fact, if you go to, I think both their websites, itsy's website and the Bracco website, they give you the formula for Barabar thin nectar, honey, thin and thick honey and the, um, and the pudding. So they're there. So you know that if you're giving thin liquid, you know what the bear or the itsy consistency is. So to me, that's a, a diet thing. And then also if, even if you gave all those things during the swallow study, there's no guarantee that that's same consistency is going to be represented at the bedside because it's not, they're not stable. The, the thing about the Verabar is they're commercially prepared. They're stable. They don't change over time. So at least, you know, I have a good calibration and then I make my prediction about what it's the consistencies to recommend. So that's how I address that question. I think we, we now just have two tools, very different tools um, that work towards standardization. And that's great. They complement one another, but they don't need to crisscross. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love how you put that just, you know, MBSIMP is for solo physiology. It's is for diets. And I think sort of what we said about fees and video fluoroscopy, people try to put you in this camp and it's like with this, they put you in this camp. Like, are you looking for physiology or are you assessing for the diet? You know? And it's like, well, sort of both. Yeah. You know, it's so. an amazing thing sometimes. And I don't know if it's just our field or probably not. It's other fields. But but really, if we just work together, there's so much to do that we should really be supporting one another's work, not trying to pit people in various camps. You know, let's move forward. There's a lot to do. Yeah. 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 I agree. Well, you know, Teresa, sometimes people, and I was thinking of it when you were asking me the question, talk about this issue about subjectivity. And they'll say to me, well, you know, you, you, these are observations and this is too subjective. And I was asked to do a course for ASHA, this controversy course uh, recently. And it was really nice to get into that whole lit literature about subjectivity, objectivity. And it's so interesting. I mean, if you think about it, yes, it is a scaled visual score. So you're looking at an observation, you're giving it a score based on a unique movement, if you will. And some will say, well, you're, you're interjecting, you know, your impression and you are, mm -hmm. if you're putting a point on a screen and tracking the hyoid, or if you're counting in millisecond, you are doing the same thing. So there's subjectivity in any measurement. And what you do is your best to 
optimize objectivity in any measure as much as possible. And one way we do that is calibration. So just because somebody takes a the MBSIMP training and they pass the reliability test, and it's hard, by the way, sometimes it takes people many times, it takes people multiple times to pass the test. But that's it was that it was that way by design. You're supposed to be learning as you're doing it. No one knows how many times it took you to pass the test. But when you leave, we all know that we at least have this minimum standard that we did. But you maintain reliability through practice and calibrating with your colleagues. And so that's that's a really important point. I just wanted to bring that up because it does, does come up. And, and again, the measure has to be meaningful. So just because it's a point or a time or a number doesn't mean that it's telling us a lot about what swallowing is supposed to do. So I just wanted to kind of get that in there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I think it's, it's, I think SLPs are perfectionists and it's like, wow, if I can't, you know, is this a two? Is this a three? Oh my gosh. You know, but then sometimes if you just take a step back and smell the roses, it's, it's okay. You know, (laughs) I think about what we used to do, you know, or what I, oh, you have a moderate problem. You have a severe problem. Well, those are so subjective. Um, And we've looked at that, actually. We've looked at severity uh, ranking, and we have a publication on that as well, looking at the oral total, pharyngeal total, and coming up with mild, functional, moderate, and severe. So we have tried to approach that. Yeah, because that's tough, because a lot of the, you know, payer sources, that's all that they want to know, you know. That's right. That's right. Did we cover everything, Bonnie? Was there anything? I think we did. Here's one other thing that comes up, Teresa. Yeah. Is that, you know, and and I thought about this too when we were um, first, you know, uh, searching the evidence on the various components. You know, I've been around long enough to know that there's variability, right? I didn't don't think I understood how much variability early on, but that there's variability in the swallow mechanism, even in healthy people. And you know, all of the early work in swallowing was really done in healthy people. I mean, most of it, you know, all the timing measures, et cetera, and with really small boluses. So once we started giving bigger boluses, you'd see more variability. And so whatever. And so people will say, yeah, but there's this normal study and two of them are mine that show that healthy people can have a score of three on initiation of the pharyngeal swallow, which means with a larger volume liquid, maybe they, you know, trigger at the level of the piriform. It's absolutely right. And so, and they'll say, well, then why is it on the tool if people do that normally? And, and the response is because you have to look at each component in context of the whole, right? So you might have a three on component six and be actually absolutely fine. No functional significance. And that's the part that where the clinician says, is this functionally significant? But if you have a score of three in the context, again, I'm using the same example of a three on tongue control, now you have a real problem. So that's another, I think, myth that people say, oh, it's normal. Don't test it. Yeah. 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 It's nuanced. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bonnie. This has been so wonderful and nice and productive. Yeah. And how are you doing? Are you doing okay? I'm doing okay. Yeah. You look great. I know well, thank it's you. been a tough time for everybody. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, do you have any, any final thoughts for the people, Bonnie? 
I just thank everybody. You know, we we will be doing some free webinars, um, Teresa, for not just MBS IMP users, but we're going to, well, for the MBS IMP users, we're going to do some free calibration training oh, because cool. we, do it, we do it in the lab and it really works well. So we, and not just lab, but the people downtown, the clinicians downtown, and we'll take some hard to score components and, and calibrate, make sure we're on the same page. And then for just for the general public, we we hope to um, just do a series of webinars just to kind of address some of these issues um, going forward. Uh, but other than that, I can't think of anything. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me, Bonnie. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for all you do for the field. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for your book. Oh, yes. So nice. Yes. One of my students last night said to me in class in our advanced practice class, she said, Dr. Martin Harris, I read a book and you're in the book. And I said, well, what book is it? And she, it was your book. Oh, I said, okay. I have that book too. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Really nice. Well, congratulations. Thank you. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.